Amen. Thank you so much, musicians. Point one, why study the Sermon on the Mount? If you've, if you've been here, I pray one of the things that you have learned or seen about Gospel Fellowship is we try in our preaching to stay tethered to the text. Here's why we believe the text has power. We understand that our words, our, our, our wisdom, our shrewdness, our creativity is limited. But that the word of God is quick and sharp and powerful than any two-edged sword and is able to change your life. The book can change your life. Somebody say that with me. The book can change your life. I remember going to Barbados and visiting my grandfather, and we've only met just a couple of times, and by the time I saw him in Barbados, he was senile. He would walk out the house, and they would have to follow him because they didn't know if he was going to walk and get lost in town, and, and there'd be times where people have to bring my grandfather back just because he was older. He was in his 80s or his 90s, and he was just senile. He was just out of his mind. I remember thinking, man, that's kind of sad because he, he's here, and we're ripping, and we're moving, and we're doing this, and he has to stay confined to this house. And I remember one day being in the house with him and watching him, and all of a sudden he would start saying this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Just quoting the Psalms. I will lift up my eyes unto the hills for what's come of my help. And he wouldn't stop after one verse. He would just keep going and going and going. And here's what I want to encourage you. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount together, as you dive into your CBR journals, what I want to encourage you is this. The Word of God is powerful. You want to get something that sticks with you. You want to get something that doesn't leave you like when people leave you. You want to get something that stays with you when everybody else walks out. When, when, when the job doesn't work out, the house doesn't work out, the car doesn't work out, the Word of God is powerful. It ain't just ink. It ain't just a page. It's not just a book. The Word of God, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, it's quick. It's, it's quick. It's, it makes alive. It's able to go down into the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God can search you out better than you can search your own self out. And this is why we got to sit under the Word of God because it's able to change us. So why study the Sermon on the Mount? Valid question. We are spending some 12, 13 weeks. Rodney, why are we spending all of this time looking at some sermon? Couldn't you come up with some better content? Couldn't you tell me how my life is going to change in 2019? Can't we talk about marriage or health or wealth? Or can't we talk about something else? I got, I got one book to use and I'm going to keep on using it. And what I want to highlight to you is this. What we're studying is the greatest sermon ever preached. I was with somebody this week and say, they said, Pastor Rodney, when you said this is your sermon, it really stuck with me. I'm like, ooh, praise God. Uh, honestly, I, 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 I don't hear that a lot. Sometimes you listen to me all the time. If you remember, you listen to me for hours and hours and hours. Hours and hours and hours. And sometimes it's hard for you to remember one thing I said in a sermon. Now, I would take that personally unless I understood that's human nature. Somebody give me 
five lines from Barack Obama's opening speech as the first African-American president in history. Somebody give me some other substantial presidential address that you remember or some speech. It's, it's, it's hard for us to remember even the best of speeches, but the Sermon on the Mount is uniquely different. The Sermon on the Mount, some 2,000 years later, we are still eating from and digesting. And not just believers, unbelievers. Christians, non-Christians, you know the Sermon on the Mount. You may not know it in its entirety, but you, yes you, you know the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to prove it in just a second. I'm going to say something from the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to fill in the rest of it. Judge not. Tupac knew that. Do unto others. Think about this. I remember the hall in the education building at Florida Atlantic University. They had this big plaque that said, do unto others as you have others do unto you. So 2,000 years later, in the hall of academia, we're still looking at this sermon. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, now some of y'all don't know that because y'all don't want to know that. <laughs> we're going to talk about that. Our Father, which art in heaven. You know the Sermon on the Mount. And this is important for us to understand and look at, and it is worthy of our attention. Let me bring out some more theologians that have spoken to this. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, humanly speaking, we could understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. That's true. Jesus knows only one possible possibility. Simply surrender and obedience. Not interpreting it or applying it, but doing it and obeying it. I love what Oswald Chambers says about this as well. The Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from identification with Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. I've got a book for my kids. It's called The Beatitudes, From Slavery to the Civil Rights. And it says this as we prepare for MLK next week and Black History Month the following uh, in, in February. The book says this, since the African-American churches was founded, since the first African-American church was founded in the 18th century, black religious organizations have brought biblical values to bear on freedom struggles. If you look at the history of African-American, it is littered with principles taken from the Beatitudes. So, Rodney, cool, what's it about? What is this Sermon on the Mount about? It's about Jesus. We said last week, we drew a, a beeline from Psalms 1 just last week, and we saw a longing for the Lord Jesus in Psalms 1 in the, <coughs> in the Old Testament. 
In Psalms 2, we can see this, this, this longing for, for, for Jesus as it talks about the, 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 the challenges when, when, when wickedness reigns in government. There's this longing for, for the Lord Jesus. Wherever we are in the Old Testament and in the New, we see the book is about Jesus. But more than that, it's also about Jesus' authority. And why you and I should obey and submit to it. Here's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about Jesus, yes. It's about Jesus' authority, yes. But it's also about why we should submit to that authority. Why we should bow our knee to the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's, that's beautiful to agree with and to give mental assent to. But the truth is, our culture paints a completely different picture. Our culture says, I'm living my best life. I will sing no more from that song. Our culture says, me, me, me. I want to sit on the throne of my life, and I want to do what I want to do. Don't, don't try to judge me. Don't try to control me. Don't try to tell me how I'm supposed to live. I want to do what I want to do. Don't tell me what's male. Don't tell me what's female. Don't tell me what's homosexual. Don't tell me what's heterosexual. I, I'm, I'm, I'm discovering who I am, and when I get there, I'll know it, and I'll follow my own heart to arrive at my own place. And it would be cool, wouldn't be cool, maybe be manageable if that only happened outside the walls of the church. But as we dig down into the corridors of our own hearts, here's what we discover as believers. I want to live my best life. That if it's uncomfortable, I want to steer away from that. If God's calling me to something, maybe I'll do that later. Maybe his commandments in my mind have become cool suggestions. Because I don't want, truth be told, Rodney, I don't want to bow down to this kingship or this lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to do me right now. And I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to your neighbor. I'm talking to you. You want what makes you happy. I want to show us that this is not a new thought. Because here's what some of us can fundamentally believe, that our parents' generation or our parents' parents' generation didn't have these kind of challenges. And that this is something that is inherently new to our generation. And so that's just how the young people are dealing with this, or this is just how millennials are dealing with this, or this is just how next gens are dealing with this. No, 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 beloved. This, this desire for happiness and control and autonomy is not anything new. It is actually something that is very, 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 very old. And that hurts some of us because in an idealistic culture, you want to come up with your own ideas, but that idea ain't new. 
You want to live a life apart from God in some area, some nook, cranny, some corner of your life. You're like, God, you can have this, 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 but that, don't you touch that. You think you came up with that? That ain't new. 17th century mathematician and Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal says this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Pascal says, every man wants to seek his own happiness. This is not solely something that Pascal has observed. We look to hedonism as a concept, as a philosophy. Hedonism says this, it is a school of thought that argues that one pursuit of pleasure is intrinsically good as the primary or most important goal of human life. In other words, the hedonist says, I want what feels good. If it feels good, how, how can it be wrong? I know he's married to someone else, but it feels good. I know the IRS says it's wrong, but it feels good to get more back. I always like to mention that around this time of year. (laughs) What am I trying to do? Hedonism is a school of thought that originated 350 years before Jesus. What am I trying to do here? I am trying to Normally on Sunday, I'm trying to build a bridge from the text to you. This morning, I'm trying to build a bridge from you to the text. I want you to see the people that Jesus is speaking to in this sermon is not different from you and me. They have the same longings, the same desires. They, too, want what makes them happy. So as we spend 12 weeks talking about what Jesus says, it's important for you to understand Don't think of them as some old, lonely people. Just whatever Jesus says they want to do, they're ready to obey. They got the same struggles you got. Especially because they're oppressed. Many of them. So whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, the question on the table is how's your search for happiness going? What this sermon does is four things I want to focus on. Then I'll be out of your way. <coughs> Excuse me. The first thing, <coughs> the first thing this sermon does is it shows us our need for an ethical king with authority. Matthew starts his, his book off in Matthew chapter one talking about the genealogy of Jesus. It is important to Matthew to root his, his talking about Jesus in Jesus being in the direct line for the Messiah or as the Messiah. He starts off talking about how Jesus fits the description in his genealogy of being the Messiah. And then in Matthew chapter 28, he ends by talking about how, as he sends out his disciples, let's read it, 
Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Don't miss this. He ends it talking about all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. What he's trying to get you to see is this Jesus, he is Savior. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the suffering servant, but he is also a a reigning king with authority. Matthew's a little bit different. He's trying to get you to see Jesus is not making suggestions. He is giving imperatives. So what's important for us to understand is our need for a king with authority, and not just a king with authority, but an ethical king, a king with ethics. Oh, as you look on CNN and Fox News or whatever you look at, clearly you can see our need for a king with ethics. Right now there's a war in Washington, D.C., and the whole idea is, I'm not going to give up. You're not going to give up. I'm not giving in. You're not going to give in. 800,000 people are without work. Nope, you first. Nope, nope, you first. Nope, I'm going to go on TV. Then then we're going to go on TV. Where are the ethics? You and I, and maybe it's not our administration. Maybe it's the folk on your job. Maybe it's, 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 it's the people that's over you in whatever area of sphere of life it is. Many of us long for people in authority, not just to be people in authority, but people in authority with ethics, that are ethical. We long for an ethical king with authority. This sermon is going to help us see our need for an ethical king. Another way we know Jesus has authority is we look at the sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Question on the table. Why does Jesus get to say who gets the kingdom of heaven? How come he can just say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom? So you got the right to tell people here on earth, will they end up for eternity? Only a king with authority can say stuff like that. And if you have issues with authority, if you've been abused by people in authority, then you're going to have a knee-jerk reaction to kick back against God's authority. You're not going to want him to lead your life. You're going to want him to come alongside and be a, a partner in the journey. When you say Jesus is a friend, you like that because a friend comes alongside. When you hear Jesus is a suffering servant, yeah, suffer for me, Jesus. When you see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, I'll sign up for that. When you see him as a king with full authority and the right to tell you and I, How do we respond? As a king, he can call. A king says to one, come, and the person comes. He says to another, go, and the person goes. The king has the ability to call. For someone this morning, there's a call of God on your life. 
I would say for, for all of us who name the name of Jesus, there is something that he is calling you to do. King has the power to call. Not just that. You look at Luke chapter 9, verse 1. We read this this week. It says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure all disease. The king has the power to call. Number two, we can never measure up to this ethical king. In the Sermon on the Mount, there are 50 commands. There are 50 imperatives, over 50 that he's telling his people to do. Here's what you need to understand, and if you don't get this, you missed the whole sermon. If you get this as a, as, as a law book to do better, you'll miss the whole sermon. Here's what you and I must confess. This, this sermon lays us bare. If you haven't read it this week, take your time. Along with your other readings, read Matthew 5 through 7 and allow the Sermon on the Mount to lay you bare before God. Because as you read it, here's what you understand. That's hard to do. It lays us bare. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. He says, as he sees all of these angels and he's in the presence of the Lord and he sees all of these beautiful things happening and he's seeing all of this holiness and righteousness and, and, and God omniance and, and all of this stuff happening in front of him. He says, woe is me. Here's what he says, I don't belong here. As you read the sermon, as you flip through these three chapters, something in you should say, I I, I don't belong. I, I, I can't find myself here. If you are reading and thinking, I do that. I'm really good at that. No, God has just really graced me to keep this perfectly. You'll have to pay attention to what he says in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, your best day, your anointed day, your day where you and God are walking like this. What you want me to do? Boom, got it. Done. Next. On that day, when he tells you to give and you don't, even, you don't even think about it. With joy. <laughs> Ain't good enough. This is why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, the Pharisees were religious. And he says, unless you are more righteous than them, you can't enter. In other words, your righteousness ain't enough. This is what Isaiah says, words to me, for I'm a man lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the middle of an unclean people, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is saying, I don't belong here. This is too much for me. This is too great for me. Verse 6 says this, 
Then one of the seraphims flew to me, having a hand of burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Notice a few things about this verse. Notice the angels had to fly down to where Isaiah was because Isaiah could not come up. To understand the next 12 weeks, here's what you got to get. The Sermon on the Mount is not something for you to work your way up as a badge of righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is something that Jesus has worked down for you. He's come down through 40 and two generations. The angel comes down to where Isaiah is because Isaiah cannot come up. And the truth of the Sermon on the Mount is the first thing you really got to get is you can't come up. He came down. This is the uniqueness of Christianity. It is not that you have worked your way up, but Christ has worked his way down for you. He takes the coal from the altar with his tongue. Why do you use a tongue? Because the the, the altar is hot. And then he puts it in his hand and touches the lips of Isaiah. And not that Isaiah is clean, but the verse says he is declared clean. Why? Because of the work that the angel did. In the same way, it is the work that Jesus has done and will do for us that declares us righteous, not our moral obedience. And this sermon is called Jesus' Ethics. There's ethics for us to discuss, but if you see ethics apart from the cross, you miss the whole boat. So what is the Lord trying to do in this sermon? Many of us, all of our lives, we have been filled up with a bunch of stuff. We've been filled up with our own ideas. We've been filled up with our own education. We've been filled up with what mama said about me, good or bad, what daddy said about me, good or bad. We've been filled up with our ideas about ourselves, or we look to find our identity in different things like our house and our car and our clothes and We try to find our identity in people or positions or titles or power. We try to find our identity in everything else apart from Jesus. And we carry this not just as believers or not just as non-believers, but as believers as well. That you fill yourself up with what you want. And then we come to church and say, fill me. I surrender all. And we say, God, more of you, less of me. Where does, okay. We come to the Sermon of the Mount, watch this, too full of us. The Sermon on the Mount is designed, watch this, to empty us of 
our self-righteousness. It's to empty us of our badge of honor wherever you place the badge of honor in your life, on your, on your job, in your home, in your, in your marriage, in your singleness, wherever you place your badge of honor in your purity, in your thinking, in your ministry. Wherever you place this badge of honor, the Sermon on the Mount seeks to snatch your badge of honor and your, 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 your cloak of righteousness off of you and give you something else. So when he talks about if any man looks at a woman and lusts after her, he has already committed adultery in his heart, and you hear that, and you're like, I'm just trying not to commit adultery. And now you tell me, if I look, I've already done it. Or if I long after someone else, or if, if, if you hear some strong command that if someone asks you to go one mile, then if, if, if the soldier who is my oppressor Ask me to go one mile. Don't just go one mile, go two. What? What is he trying to do? He's not just working on your morals. He's working on your motivations. You see, the Sermon on the Mount seeks to empty us of our self-righteousness, of our pride, of what we desire, of our own self-worth and self-value, and then seeks to fill you up with something stronger, something better, something lasting. Oh, no, I can't stop there, right? This illustration... And this week, what I've been, what, what's hit me in my fast is this. I thought the fast was to give me a greater anointing. I thought the fast was like, whew, when I fast, boy, if I pray, folk better get healed. When I wave my hand, the church better explode. I thought God was giving me a greater anointing. Here's what he's been doing in the fast. He's been exposing how wretched I am. I told him, this is what I thought. This fast has been bringing me face to face with how much Rodney think he is and who God sees Rodney as. This is why the Sermon on the Mount always brings us to rejoicing in what Jesus has done and what we can't do. So this fast has just taken me deeper because I said to the Lord, I'm full. And the Lord said, no, you ain't. I got to take you deeper. Oh, I love people. Not the way I called you to. Oh, I'm faithful. Not the faithfulness I'm calling you to. And he's not doing that to, to, to say, oh, Rodney, do better, do better. Do. He's trying to show the only way you get to greater faithfulness is by greater surrender. 
He hides me at the foot of his cross and shows me a deeper desperation for him. Because I could never measure up to this ethical king, so he has to empty me so he can fill me. He has to deconstruct me so he can reconstruct me. He has to keep moving the goalpost so I grow with greater dependence on him. That's how you're going to get through your relationship. That's how you're going to get through that job. That's how you're going to get through your marriage. You're going to grow in your need for Jesus. Number three, our need to have ethical kings with authority that is willing to die for us. This is the good news of the gospel. This king didn't just wave his his scepter from afar. He came where we are and died in our place. We need an ethical king with authority, not that just comes, not that just lives, not that just gives commands, but he does more. We need an ethical king with authority that is willing to die for us. And in dying, take away our wretchedness before God and give us a right standing with God. So even as we study the Sermon on the Mount for believers, you study it understanding your own righteousness in Christ and Christ alone. And then lastly and fourthly, we need an ethical king that sends us the Holy Spirit to be kingdom representatives. Beloved, we live in a culture, we live in a world that thinks very little of absolute truth, that thinks very little of the truth claims of Jesus. We live in a world that would mock much of what God tells his people to do. This is why Jesus sends us with the Holy Spirit, to live different, (coughs) excuse me, to live differently. He did not call us to live like what we see and what we hear. He's called us to live paradoxically. He's called us to march by a beat of a different drum. He's called us to live differently. We aren't supposed to be like everyone else. He's called us to work differently. He's called us to pray and to fast. He's called us to show grace to people that you and I know may not be worthy of me extending grace, yet he calls us to extend grace. Calls us to do friendship differently. He calls us to love people that may be struggling It's an area of their life and love them with grace to the foot of the cross that they may find the same righteousness we found. As we gauge, as we engage in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll talk a little bit about everything from anger to lust to fasting to giving to praying. But in all that we talk about, I want you to remember is to expose your need for Jesus and then send you out on mission to live differently, not for his righteousness, but because you already have it. Everyone standing.
Prayer team, would you come? Thank you, Lord. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning, you're being called to a, to a place of surrender. Maybe this morning you can admit that you've approached Christianity in your own self-righteousness. Maybe this morning you understand that your own, your own self-righteousness isn't good enough. We want to offer prayer. If you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we want for you to come. If you need prayer for any issue, we want for you to come. If there's sickness in your body, we want to pray. We, want to, and we ask for you to come. This time, if there's anything that you would like prayer for personally, we're going to ask that you come, and then we'll move on. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. As you're coming, let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray that as we spend this time studying your sermon, greatest sermon ever preached, Father, we pray that you would give us insight, give us understanding. Help us to find you in it. Help us to find your authority. Help us to bow our knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you that 2,000 years ago, you've accomplished for us what, what we couldn't do, what, what, what we couldn't do. So as this sermon lays us bare, would we find our hope, our identity, our trust, and yes, our happiness in you? Help us to seek happiness the way you've designed for us to seek it. As we march through your Beatitudes, even next week, God, give us understanding and wisdom and might, I pray. In the name of Jesus, we thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord.